So, I'm pretty sure I'm going to ignore this side of the room. It's nothing personal, but this is a crazy room collection. Because I know one of my slides is where I'd have to see them. It's okay. So, questions from last week? Anything? Um, so, again, we're just going to finish up with the drugs this week. I am on vacation starting next Thursday, so. Yeah, I'm pretty excited too. <laughs> um, yeah, so if you have questions, try and get them to me before like Tuesday the latest, so I have time to answer. Uh, I don't. I don't know if I can send a couple of practice questions. It, there's actually limited information I can ask you about, so I don't want to like give away all my questions and practice questions. I know you guys feel like it's probably way too much information, but. Again, I'm going to ask you about what I've talked about in class and really the things I focused on in class. Okay, so it's really a piece of cake. An hour studying your outside. Okay. All right. So, all right. All right. Settle down. <laughs> all right. So we stopped off. We were talking about um, chemo, and we stopped with the anthracyclines. So, as a class. The anthracyclines are really the first four drugs are, are the classic anthracyclines, the last drug. Mitoxantrone is an anthracetidione, so it, it's close enough. You don't need to know that. But basically, these drugs all really pharmacologically are um, similar. Uh, they passively diffuse into the cell. But when you look at the mechanism of action, it's two things, really. They intercalate DNA, and it's a intercalate just sort of means that the drug is insinuating itself into the DNA strand. The binding is just different than an alkylating agent. So it's a little bit stronger, different type of binding into the DNA. But the idea is the same. You have this drug within the DNA strand. When the strand, when the cell tries to replicate, it hits this drug. It can't follow through. The replication fork can't keep moving. So it's sort of, you, you introduce this torsional strain to the DNA molecule the cell dies. The other thing it does is work on topoisomerase 2. So topoisomerase 2 is an enzyme it's ubiquitous in all our cells. The function of topo2 enzyme is to make double-stranded DNA nicks, right? You have to unwind the DNA, so this enzyme comes in and makes two nicks in the DNA. The DNA unwinds, replicates, and then the topo2 sort of re-ligates or, or glues the DNA back together where it made that initial nick, okay? What the, what the chemo does, the anthracycline binds to that topoisomerase 2. It allows those first nicks to be made, but then it doesn't allow their re-gluing back together the DNA. So imagine a piece of DNA with a bunch of, of nicks all along it, okay? So that's how it kills cells. Um, so those are the two mechanisms to know for the exam. There's some other stuff that happens with the drug in terms of producing oxygen-free radicals and using iron to produce these forms and such. But really the two red bulleted um, items are what you need to know. In terms of um, clearance of this drug, it's really, they're all pretty much liver. So if bilirubins are elevated, you have to think about uh, dose adjusting. Okay. Um, and I'm not ever going to ask you, you know, how much would you dose reduce by, or if this, I, I want you to make the association, if someone's bilirubin's high and they're getting anthracycline, they may need some dose adjustment, or you may need to think about what you're doing with the drug, but I'm not going to ask you, 
Mrs. Jones has a bilirubin of three, she's supposed to get doxorubicin, would you reduce by half a dose, you know, 25%, whatever. I won't ask you anything like that. Um, the key toxicity with anthracyclines are cardiotoxicity, so anyone interested in anesthesia, things like that, um, this is where knowing about someone's history of anthracycline exposure comes into play, because the cardiotoxicity that you see is actually um, a CHF type picture for the most part. Um, it's thought that, again, some oxygen-free radicals are produced when you give this drug and those free radicals affect the myocardium and causes the toxicity. Um, and the myocardium is a little more susceptible because of decreased antioxidant um, enzymes. But basically there are two types of cardiotoxicity. Um, the acute cardiotoxicity is totally idiosyncratic, can occur with dose number one or dose number ten. No one's really going to get ten, but anytime um, you can't predict, it's not, if a patient has a history of cardiovascular disease, they're not at increased risk. Um, you know, there, there's really, it's totally idiosyncratic. Um, what happens is patients present with acute changes in EKG. Basically, it's an MI type picture. That were to happen, you never give the drug again, all right? That's not that common. I think I've seen two cases in the 20 plus years I've been practicing, okay? So it's, it, it's not at all that, it's not that common. The more common type is the chronic cardiotoxicity, and that's associated with cumulative doses. And really what that is, is a decrease in left ventricular ejection fraction. So anyone getting an anthracycline, especially, excuse me, an exam world, will always have some sort of assessment of their EF prior to getting a dose of drug, okay? So you're going to get um, either a MUGA or an ultrasound, something that's going to tell you that that patient's EF is 55%, okay? Um, so if you get that number and then the patient gets a couple of cycles, they come in there and they say, well, I'm getting a little shorter breath walking down, down the street to get, or down the driveway to get my mail and back. You do an echo again, the EF's gone from 55% down to 40%, you have to stop the drug, okay? Because again, it's not a reversible cardiotoxicity. So basically, what you see is dilatation of the heart, pulmonary venous congestion, per, poor perfusion, pleural effusion, so really a CHF type picture. So it's not always reversible. You treat it medically with you know drugs. Uh, we've had a couple of patients who've, um, due to circumstances, ended up having to go get a heart transplant after we cured them of their lymphoma. Okay, so not anything you want to subject your patients to. So you're always going to get an EF uh, or an assessment of the EF first um, and follow it um, along the course. Yeah. Do drugs that protect the heart uh, for like normal congestive heart failure protect the heart in this situation? So the question was, do drugs that protect the heart um, in normal patients with CHF for normal circumstances, would they protect the heart in, in this situation? Probably not. There is actually one cardioprotective agent that we have um, that you can use in combination with an anthracycline. The problem is um, it's been studied in only metastatic disease, and we're not sure if you're also protecting the tumor from the effects of the chemo. Um, so we really don't use it up front um, in patients getting it. 
So I think I'm trying to say no, not really. Um, but yeah. So so it's a big deal. So you know, our nurses, the first time we get a patient, if there's at all time to get an echo first or get a, an assessment, we'll get an EF, know what baseline is. You know, if someone were so critical that you had to get chemo into them right away and they were a 40-year-old with no history of cardiac disease, you'd give the chemo and get an echo sometime during the course to know what's going on. And as I said, we get calls all the time from anesthesia. How much um, anthracycline exposure has this patient had? Because it sort of speaks to how well their heart's going to be pumping up there. Um, all right, so the cardiotoxic dose, you don't, you should not have to know this for your boards. This is more fellow level boards, um, but there are different numbers. That 450 number is what's in books if you look it up. Clinically, we use a lower number, so we use about 300. So again, patient has gotten six cycles of chemo. They're at that 300 milligrams per meter squared dose, and then they start coughing a lot or they're having some edema, this, that, and the other thing. We might... Uh, we might, um, yeah, that's why I want vacation. We, we might start looking a little more closely. Um, neutropenia can occur. This drug is a vesicant, so again, you put it in the vein. It can leak, cause problems. Alopecia is thrown in there. It's a uh, drug that's commonly used in a lot of uh, breast cancer regimens, especially early on. So that's when the, you know, the, uh, I don't want to say women are vain, but, you know, when you start thinking about hair loss and such, it becomes more... Uh, more of an issue for, for the patients. Um, nausea and vomiting, remember this is one of those drugs that causes delayed nausea and vomiting. So in exam world, we'll always get palinositron, amend, and dexamethasone to start with. Um, and then there's this phenom phenomenon of radiation recall. And what that is, in patients who have had previous radiation to a site, so say they had a breast cancer, they had surgery, radiation, um, then a few months later they're getting chemo. Actually the site where they got the radiation may start to sort of flare and get red, um, almost rashy-like, can be severe at times. No one really understands what's happening in that, but that, that phenomenon is called radiation recall. So it's associated with this drug. Not all drugs will cause that. Um, in terms of where this drug is used, um, solid tumors for the most part, um, some lymphomas. Alright, so I, I have to answer this since it's like the boss. Um, so talk amongst yourselves for a couple of minutes. I'll be hopefully right back. Alright, so I'm leaving now. Wishful thinking. <laughs> I didn't say that. Alright, so that's the anthracyclines, alright? Um, and the other thing, this is just an aside, the anthracyclines actually have a red color to them, so if you ever in Side after this, you just want to work in oncology. Um, these drugs are red, so red cardiotoxicity. That's how you make that association. But only geeky pharmacists do that. All right. So the next class of drugs are the topoisomerase one inhibitors. Again, these um, work by affecting the topoisomerase one enzyme. So if we look at the top panel here. Um, again, topo one is another enzyme that we have in all our cells. So if this is our normal DNA, we want to replicate. We make a single-stranded nick with our topo one enzyme. The DNA unwinds, uncoils, replication takes place, and then the topo one comes in and glues stuff back together. So you have um, a nice, nice little replication going on. What happens is when we give these drugs, 
we have our single-stranded NIC, um, but the, the drug actually locks the topo-1 topo enzyme in place and doesn't allow it to re-ligate the DNA, glue the DNA back together again. So you're left with a strand of DNA with single-stranded NICs all along its length, so the cell can't replicate. So that's how the topoisomerase one, so obviously dozens of topo twos. Um, the one drug to talk about is arinotecan. Um, this drug is actually a prodrug, um, or let me take that back. This drug is metabolized to a more active formulation, and the active metabolites about a hundred times more potent than the, the parent drug. Um, so, uh, again, not going to ask you that type of detail on the exam. Um, but in terms of unique toxicities with arinotecan, uh, myelosuppression can occur, as we know with all our drugs. But really the, the unique thing is diarrhea with arinotecan. And it gets better because there are two types of diarrhea you can worry about. Okay, the first type is an acute diarrhea happens to patients sitting in the infusion center, the drugs running into their veins, all of a sudden they got to run up, get up and run to the bathroom. Cramping pain, thought to be due to a cholinergic metabolite of the drug, the, the mechanism isn't entirely clear, um, but what you do is give low-dose atropine to counteract the effects, um, cure, sort of uh, resolves the issue right away, when the patient comes in for the next dose of arinotecan, they would get pre-medded with atropine, again, low dose. So all our orders have PRN atropine in them. Um, so acute happens, I'm going to say 30, 40% of the time, fairly common, um, easily treatable. Okay. The other type of diarrhea is, is a delayed diarrhea. So this is happening when the patients go home. So they get through their infusion, they're doing okay, then they get home and all of a sudden badness happens. Okay. Um, actually, when the drug was first approved, uh, there were deaths associated with the diarrhea because it's, it can be so voluminous that your electrolytes get totally out of whack. Um, so there, there were cardiac deaths associated with it. So anyone getting um, arinotecan is sent home with instructions, prescription on how to take Imodium or loperamide. Okay. So it's really, at the first sign of diarrhea, you take four milligrams, and then you take two milligrams every two hours until you go for 24, um, or until you go for 12 hours without um, any diarrhea, okay? So you're taking a lot more than, you know, a lot of, if you look at a box or if you're out on the floors, it usually says no more than like eight tablets a day, 16 milligrams. They're given like 20, 30 milligrams of Imodium uh, for this type of diarrhea, okay? Um, and you can stretch it out and give it every four hours at night so patients can maybe get a little bit of sleep. Um, but it's, it's key, diarrhea, arinotecan. Um, and this is a drug that's cleared through the, um, the hepatic system, so if patients have some hepatic dysfunction, you need to think about dose adjusting. Again, you may not get as, um, um, as efficacious uh, response as you want if someone, because again, you have to metabolize that drug to, to a more potent metabolite, um, so you got to think about it. So of course, the drug that's causing all these GI things are used exclusively in GI tumors, okay, so like double whammy for patients, so really this, any GI 
tumor for the most part. The retica is one of the backbones. Um, it's probably dropped down to like 20th line now in lung because we have so many more targeted therapies that we can use. We're going too fast. We may have to like slow down a little and do more drugs here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so next ring. <laughs> uh, see, vacation is very bad to look for right before vacation. Um, so, next ring is asper asparaginase. Um, this ring is very unique in terms of all of oncology. You're probably only going to see it at the most in two diseases, but really, it's, it's main place is in treatment of acute lymphocytic leukemia, so an ALL, okay? So I know you guys haven't done um, oncology yet, but ALL is a disease, a leukemia, sort of two, two occurrences, like young kids, you know, less than two years old, it's like one of the top childhood malignancies, and then you have older patients. And there is, um, what's unique about asparaginase is kids tolerate the drug so much better than adults. And many people think the reason why we can cure pediatric ALL is because we can get a lot of aspar asparaginase into patients. Um, it has a unique mechanism of action. As the name implies, it's an enzyme. So what happens is the um, normal lymphocytes, um, uh, asparagine is an essential amino acid. If something happens that you can't make asparagine, there are some bypass sort of mechanism so you can make asparagine so you have your essential amino acid. Um, in the lymphoblast, so the leukemia cell, it doesn't have those bypass mechanisms. So you give this drug, it metabolizes the asparagine in the cell, and the cell can't go on and make its normal complement of amino acids. Okay, so very unique mechanism of action. Um, ultimately, you decrease uh, or inhibit protein synthesis. Uh, there are a couple of different formulations, don't worry about that for now. It's really is, um, the drug is associated with a lot of um, side effects, or it used to be, there we go. Alright, so one of the key things, um, this is uh, from an E. coli source, so there were some hypersensitivity reactions. We used to do test doses before, so you'd give a small dose intradermally and look for a wheel and flare. So, you know, you wait half an hour to an hour, and if you didn't see a reaction, then you go ahead and give full dose to the patient. If they did have a big reaction, you'd freak out, you'd have a discussion, decide to give lots of pre-meds and still give the drug, because again, this is a drug that's going to really help cure patients. Uh, because of the way the formulation is now, is, is, there's really only a long-acting formulation and we don't really do test dose. There's less hypersensitivity reactions to it now. Um, well, sort of old school, you may still hear about test dosing with asparaginase. Um, it has effects on multiple organ systems within the body, so the endocrine system. So you can see pancreatitis. Because of its effects, you can have hypo or, or hyperglycemia. So you have to monitor your patients pretty closely. It can cause hepatotoxicity, and because of its effects on the liver, you have issues with clotting or bleeding. So you can have both. You know, it just depends how lucky you are. Um, so it does affect vitamin K-dependent clotting factors. Um, one of the key things is to monitor fibrinogen in patients getting L-asparaginase. 
So you'll see um, labs, uh, you know, before every dose of asparaginase, make sure that fibrinogen is greater than 300, so they're, um, it decreases their risk of having issues with um, their, their clotting system. It, there can be some cerebellar dysfunction, you know, um, we've had patients get like terrible um, balance issues um, and such. Uh, some of our older patients, I don't do pediatrics. Um, and there are also some drug interactions that can occur, um, having to do with the fact that asparaginase will actually um, block cells from going into S phase, so it can actually be used as a rescue when given with methotrexate. Um, so remember, methotrexate is S phase specific, so it works best when the cell's undergoing um, synthesis. So if asparaginase blocks the cell from going into synthesis, it's actually used as sort of a rescue agent in certain ALL protocols. Again, um, that's, I'm not going to ask you that on the exam, all right, that's more just so when you get out and practice. Um, when regimens are billed for ALL, there's specific timing for drugs like methotrexate, asparaginase, and often you guys are going to get questions, well, Mrs. Jones wants to go home early, can you just give the asparaginase early? And this is one of those times where you really can't change the timing of, of drugs. A lot of times we'll back things up a little bit so patients can get out and skip traffic. In this case, you really want to stay on track and, and give it the way it was uh, written. All right, so that's asparaginase. So I think that actually <coughs> ends the section on sort of conventional chemotherapy. All right. So questions on that stuff. Um, so the, the next part of the lecture is really about some of the newer um, targets and the newer way of thinking about um, how we approach our oncology patients. You know, so more targeted, precision medicine, personalized medicine, all those terms have been used. But really trying to target a specific pathway, receptor, um, mutation, something like that. So we're, we're not like causing so much toxicity for the patient. So Paul lets me go through um, monoclonal antibodies. I used to do this when I worked in the lab. So anyone do work in a lab and make monoclonals? Yeah, all right, so. <laughs> This is how old I am. So, so this was actually sort of new back in 1975. Um, what these guys, Kohler and Milstein did, this was uh, pretty much a landmark paper. Basically they thought, well, how can I, so if I wanted uh, an endless supply of antibody, and if they took a plasma cell which makes antibodies and stuck it in, you know, culture, put it in a, an incubator, would it grow? No, right? Because the cells aren't meant to live forever. So what cells live forever and don't die when they're supposed to? Yes. Cancer cells, right? So what these guys thought was, well, what if we took a cancer cell making the antibody that we want, or, or take a cancer cell that's going to live forever, fuse it to a cell that's making the antibody that we want? Can we get a cell to now make our antibody and live forever? So really, that's the experiment they did. So they took, um, and again, it, unless you're really in you know, you don't, I'm not going to ask you this stuff on the exam, it's more so you know where, where these drugs are coming from. Um, what they did is, if you know a protein you want to make um, an antibody to, you inject mice, you do intraperitoneal injections, right? And then you, you let the, the mouse sort of like do its thing, let the immune system of the mouse do its thing. 
You sacrifice the mouse, you take out the spleen where all the, the B cells, the plasma cells are living, grind it up, you have all those cells. And then we have myeloma cell lines, so plasma uh, cell, um, malignant cell lines. So what these guys did is they took the two cells, put them together in the, in the presence of polyethylene glycol. Polyethylene glycol is a substance that makes cell membranes a little more fluid. So if you can imagine, some cells could actually fuse together. And then they put them in special media that would only allow the fused cells to grow. Okay, So the plano myeloma cells would die off and the plano spleen cells would die. Only those fused cells would grow. So the hybrid cells. So sometimes you hear the term hybridoma. That's where that's coming from. It's a hybrid of the, the myeloma cell and the, and the plasma cell. And then they have a bunch of these fused cells and it's like, okay, which one is making the antibody that I want? So they took out the cells and did limiting dilution, um, use a limiting dilution technique. So you put a single cell in a single well of a 96 well plate, right? Then you grow them up, you check and see what antibody they're producing. If you find the one that's making the antibody you want, it's a home run, right? So now you have an endless supply of your antibody. So that's what Kohler and Milstein did. Um, big Pharma took a hold of it and industrialized the process. So now we have all these drugs that are monoclonal antibodies, okay? Um, when you think about how they look, remember uh, monoclonal antibodies are basically this Y-shaped protein, okay? These are the variable regions of the antibody, and this is really what tells you what that antibody is going to bind to. And this is called the FC or the constant region. That sort of sticks up and has some effects um, in terms of getting the immune system to recognize things. So what do you think happens when you inject a bunch of mouse antibody into a patient? Oh, you can't see it? Oh, which one am I clicking on? Okay. Right there, and Okay. All right, so variable regions, constant region. Uh, this is telling you where the antibody is going to bind. So if we give a bunch of animal or um, mouse antibody to humans, what happens to your patient? Do they love you? Do they hate you? They hate you, right? So you're going to have infusion-related reactions, sort of like a serum sickness type picture. It's not a good thing. So while initial, you know, early drugs were all of human source, the thought was, what if we dial down the amount of animal protein and um, will that decrease the numbers of reactions we have? So the first attempt at that was chimeric antibodies. So the majority of the protein is now human, but only this area that really tells the antibody where to bind is still of animal source, okay? So those are chimeric antibodies. You still get reactions, and within these areas, there are these smaller areas called the complementary defining regions, and that's really the part of the, the protein that tells the antibody where to go. So those are humanized antibodies, so much or, or less amount of animal protein, um, and the rest human protein. And then with technology, we now can just insert a gene and get a fully humanized monoclonal antibody. So we have those out there now. So that's what's um, going on in terms of our monoclonal antibodies. All right, so we have them. Um, so how are they killing cancer cells? Well, multiple mechanisms. Um, so if we talk about just naked, ant or 
naked monoclonal antibodies, so just we're just given antibody to patients. We're imagining that this is our tumor cell and there's a specific protein on the tumor cell that the antibody will um, recognize. So for definitely an exam world, your patient has to have the protein that that antibody is directed against. And for the most part, that's what happens in real life. Every once in a while, there are some um, variations on how much protein you have to have. But So we have our tumor, we have our, our protein, we give our antibody. The antibody binds here, the FC portion sticks up, and sort of says to the immune, to the complement system, come get me. Complement comes in, starts that whole reaction that you memorized and forgot after the exam, right? <laughs> Cell gets a lot of holes, it dies. Okay, so that's complement-mediated cytotoxicity. All right, second way, if you don't know, always gets apoptosis. All right, so just by binding the antibody to the cell surface, it triggers apoptosis within the cell. All right, so that's also been thought to be a mechanism uh, of these drugs. And then the third is antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. So in this case, we're using our drug, our antibody, to attract other immune effector cells. So NK cells, natural killer cells. So the FC portion is sticking up, sort of flagging the cell and saying, this is a cancer cell, come and kill it. So it, it, the, the other immune cells recognize and come in uh, and kill the cell, okay? So those are the three mechanisms by which we think monoclonal antibodies work to kill cancer cells. In oncology, more is always better, so there's other stuff we can do. We can conjugate some other things onto the antibody and use it as sort of a delivery system to the tumor. So there is now just one drug available with an, actually a radionuclide attached to the monoclonal antibody. So again, what's happening is our antibody uh, radionuclide is going to bind to our tumor cell because the radiation penetrates some of the, the surrounding cells, you get a bystander effect. So we're going to kill that one cell, but also get some other cells in the area. Okay, so there's one drug available used for lymphoma that, that uses this mechanism. As you would imagine, it's not the easiest thing to do because there is radiation involved, so nuclear medicine is involved, so the drug hasn't really taken off as, as the company I would have guessed would have liked it to but still used every once in a while. The other thing we can do is, well, let's add more chemo to it. So we can just add um, a chemo agent to the monoclonal antibody, and again, the thought is you're delivering it directly to the tumor, you don't have all that other uh, sort of noise in the background, and you're just killing the tumor cell. And we have a few uh, drug conjugates out there now. Right, so when you see a drug name, when you're watching TV in your spare time, and you see a commercial about a monoclonal antibody, there is certain uh, naming conventions that will tell you what type of antibody it is. So anything that ends in MAB means it's a monoclonal antibody, okay? Anything that ends in OMAB means it's a murine um, monoclonal antibody. Ixamab means it's chimeric. Zumab means it's humanized, and Umab means it's fully human, okay? So now, right off the bat, you're going to know everything when you see monoclonals. That was a joke. 
Okay. <laughs> so here's a partial list of what's out there for oncology monoclonals. Um, so it's not just oncology where you see them, they're in GI, they're in rheumatoid arthritis, they're sort of all over the place now. Um, and there actually are a lot of commercials because I watch a lot of TV at night. Um, but so this is a partial list, you do not have to memorize this whole list. I want you, for the monoclonals, definitely know the three mechanisms of action uh, for sort of the naked antibodies, okay? Understand that. Um, I'm going to go through a few examples. I'll tell you when I want you to know the specifics of the example, okay? Um, the other thing I want you to know is that if the, you have to have the protein that the antibody is directed against in order to give the drug to the patient, okay? So if I say I want to give, um, you know, uh, rituximab, which is an anti-CD20 antibody to a patient with lymphoma, but their tumor is CD20 positive, positive, CD20 negative, right? That doesn't make sense because you have to have the protein on there. Right, so we're going to go through a couple of antibodies again. Um, first couple of slides are just some examples. Um, so two of the earliest uh, monoclonals that were approved were um, trastuzumab and rituximab. Trastuzumab or Herceptin is a drug that targets HER2 new. This is a protein that's overexpressed in about a third to a quarter of breast cancers. You know, in the old days, you send a breast biopsy and you get ERPR <coughs> positivity, right? So you're looking for estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor. Now you always get HER2 status also. So you see if HER2 is overexpressed. If it is, then more than likely the patient is going to get trastuzumab somewhere in their treatment. Um, so it targets the HER2 new. Um, in terms of general toxicities with the monoclonal antibodies, which you should know, infusion-related reactions can still occur. Even if it's fully humanized, because you're giving a protein to a patient, you have the risk of infusion-related reactions, okay? So hypersensitivity, infusion-related. So what that means is the patient's getting it, they may get shorter breath, back pain, fevers, chills, um, did I say shortness of breath, uh, those types of, of um, reactions. If that happens, you usually stop the infusion, you give some, um, some antihistamines, some steroids, and usually you can, most instances you can start up the infusion again at a slower rate and patients do okay. So general toxicity, hypersensitivity, infusion-related reactions. Um, the other thing with monoclonal antibodies, although we like to think they're totally specific for the protein they're directed against, there's always a little bit of cross-reactivity. So the cells may attack the, you know, um, the HER2 new, but may actually hit some other tissues. And one of the ones that happens to be affected is cardiac tissue with trastuzumab. So you can actually see some CHF, um, some cardiotoxicity. So originally some of the regimens um, gave anthracycline in combination with trastuzumab, um, but they saw more cardiotoxicity. So now you'll see it more of a sequential manner than, than together. So um, that's some of the things we see with Herceptin. The other um, early and um, um, really uh, well-used drug is rituximab. This is a drug you'll see also in room and GI. It, so this targets CD20, which is a B cell marker. So it targets B, B cells, lymphocytes. 
So anything where there's an autoimmune component, you could use this drug to try and decrease the immune reaction. Um, so in oncology, it's really for, for lymphomas, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas for the most part where we use this. Again, we get hypersensitivity infusion-related reactions. Because this drug is effective at um, attacking B cells and killing those B cells, you can see tumor lysis that we talked about last week. Okay, so a lot of times, um, or in some instances, we'll sort of reserve this drug and use it with a second cycle because we don't get as robust a killing with just the chemotherapy. Then we bring it in um, with second cycle on to sort of uh, when there's less tumor burden around. Um, so a couple of other drugs, uh, two examples of conjugated monoclonals. The first one, brentuximab, is a, a monoclonal antibody against CD30, which is the, um, the target of a Hodgkin cell, uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma cell. And this drug is conjugated to an anti-microtubule um, chemotherapeutic agent, MMAE. You don't need to know that. Right, but this is an example of a monoclonal chemo combination, so it's delivering the drug directly to the Hodgkin's, um, uh, the Hodgkin's cell, okay? Um, its major side effect is myelosuppression along with infusion-related reactions. This was a, a big thing when it first came out because in refractory, relapsed refractory Hodgkin's patients in which there was no real treatment, um, giving this drug as a single agent had 30% complete response rates. So it was a huge, uh, huge thing when this drug came out. And then the other example here is Zevalin. Um, the generic's there for you. I can't even try to pronounce it at this point. So again, this drug is um, a CD20 antibody that's linked to a radionuclide, um, yttrium-90. Um, yttrium is both an alpha, and beta, no wait, okay, I can't remember what yttrium is, huh. it's a radionuclide, I think it's a beta emitter, beta emitter, um, so it's going, so what, the difference between the, the, the radionuclides, so I-131, I don't know if anyone works in a lab ever deal with that stuff, so like I-131 is a gamma emitter, which means you need about an inch of lucite to block those rays from, from getting through, whereas yttrium is beta emitter, and beta can be stopped by a sheet of paper. So it depends on how penetrating the rays are. Um, so yttrium is a beta emitter. So again, you're getting that one tumor cell that the antibody binds to, but also other tumor cells in the area because the radiation is targeting it. As you would imagine, you can't just give full dose of a radioactive substance because we don't know how the drug is going to um, spread throughout the body. So what you have to do is give a small dose um, then you send the patient to a gamma camera or such, and they really look to see how the drug distributes in the body. So if there was a large collection of drug at the heart, you wouldn't give full dose because you would expect full dose to go to the heart and kill patient bad, okay? So you do that, you give a small dose, you make sure distribution's okay, then you come back the next week and give full dose. There are some things when you send patients home. When we first started using these drugs, there's actually one lead-lined um, patient room in the, one of the old Farnsworth buildings here. And you used to, you know, you give the drug, you stick the patient in the room and rounds in the morning, you go by, wave through the window. I remember doing this. We'd all look in the window, wave, and then walk out because no one wanted to get near the patient because they're radioactive, right? And you hope they didn't get sick because you'd have to go in and take care of them. 
Nowadays, this is all done outpatient. Certain things when a patient gets sent home, no sexual activity for the first 24, 48 hours. If you have little babies, you don't want them sitting on your lap. Um, you know, no, no kissing. Um, if, well, you don't ever want to touch bodily fluids, just a hint, but especially not in, in these guys, right? Um, if you have two bathrooms in the house, one bathroom for the patient, everyone else uses the other one, double flushing, you know, soiled linens, all that stuff, you, you treat them separately. So it's not, again, not easy drugs to use, um, a lot of complications with giving them, so you don't see them all that often. All right. Um, the majority of the monoclonal antibodies are, not, are infusional, um, and because of these risk of infusion-related reactions, it can take Anywhere from, you know, first doses may take four hours to get in, four to six hours, so patients really don't like that. So the newest trend that we're seeing now, um, and again, I'm not going to test you on this, just so you know, is sub-Q administration of these drugs. The first one that we have approved in oncology is the rituximab, and the new name is rituxan hycella, which is a sub-Q formulation. Um, what it is, it's a, a like six times concentrated um, uh, drug formulation. It's the dose is anywhere from 11 to like 13 uh, cc's of drug given subcutaneously in one injection site. So I don't know. Has anyone given sub-Q injections before? Right. So usually you limit it to two cc's or less. And in this case, we're giving 11, 12, 13 cc's sub-Q. And the reason you can get away with doing that is the drug is combined with haluronidase. What haluronidase does is affects the, the extracellular, extracellular matrix of the skin, really allows spreading of the drug. So what happens is it, it sort of um, loosens up the extracellular matrix so you don't have nice tight skin. It's, it's a little bit um, fluid, so you, you can push the drug in. The drug is then absorbed pretty quickly into the capillaries, and um, the effects of the hyaluronidase is reversed within 48 hours, so the, the skin comes sort of back to normal. So you don't have, you know, when you inject the patient, you don't have a bunch of drooping skin all over the place, so by the end, they just look like a blob. Everything comes back to normal. So this is actually a, a huge thing. So now you're talking giving a drug sub-Q takes maybe 15 minutes to get into the patient instead of them coming an hour and a half, um, you know, even longer based on how well your pharmacy gets the drug out. So this is a trend you're going to be seeing, more monoclonals subcutaneously given. Just thought you'd need to know that for Jeopardy. Um, all right. Uh, do you guys want to take a break or you want to plow through? Plow? Okay. All right. All right. So. Again, those four drugs, just no general. The infusion-related reactions, um, the hypersensitivity reactions, you got to have your target there. Um, I will not ask you specifics about those four drugs, or, or five, with us up to you, okay? Um, so now we'll get into some drugs where I, I are sort of fair game, and, and um, I may ask you specifics. So the next... Um, <laughs> The next monoclonal we'll talk about is unique in that it's a, a VEGF inhibitor. So VEGF is vascular endothelial growth factor. So remember way back last, last week at the first lecture, like the first five minutes maybe, 
talked about tumors as they get bigger, they need a blood supply, they need a food supply, they need oxygen. And one of the ways they can do that is they can um, improve their own vasculature by making new blood vessels. So the thought was, what if we have a drug that can stop the ability of these tumor cells to make these new blood vessels? So these are the VEGF inhibitors, okay? So there are a couple of drugs out there now, but basically um, what we're doing is if under normal circumstances what's happening, VEGF, our vascular endothelial growth factor, binds to its receptor on the cell, you get downstream phosphorylation, ultimately you lead to all these things, proliferation, survival, ultimately angiogenesis, okay? Now we have a drug, uh, and the drug we're going to talk about is bevacizumab, that's the one you need to know. It actually binds to the VEGF, doesn't allow it to bind to its receptor, so you block the downstream events, okay? So you're blocking angiogenesis. So there are a few VEGF inhibitors. Uh, the one I want you to know is bevacizumab, that first one, Avastin. Um, uh, Zaltrap, which is the second drug there, works slightly differently in terms of how it's stopping angiogenesis, but basically it's an anti-angiogenic drug. The bevacizumab um, has some unique toxicities. One of the things um, where it was first studied is, was in colorectal cancer. And again, colon cancer, if you have um, early enough stage disease, you really want to cut it out, right? It's a solid tumor, cut it out, and then come in with your adjuvant chemo. And what they found was if patients got bevacizumab too soon after surgery, they're having all kinds of complications because of impaired wound healing, GI perforation, hemorrhage, wound dehiscence, okay? So it sort of makes sense. Instead of being able to heal that area, you're blocking angiogenesis. So black box warning, if someone needs Avastin, you usually have to wait four to six weeks after surgery before you can use this drug. The other thing, because of its effects on the vasculature, hypertension um, is um, a unique toxicity with the drug. So someone who's never had hypertension in their life comes into clinic and now their, their blood pressure is 200 over 100 and everyone's freaking out, okay? So you have to hold the drug if that happens, you don't give it. Um, in terms of putting the patients on an antihypertensive, it's, it's sort of physician's choice. There's not one drug that's been shown to be better than another um, in terms of antihypertensive, so it's usually what the physician's used to prescribing. Um, you can also get both thrombotic and bleeding episodes with the drug, so you do have to monitor your patients for DVTs, PEs, um, bleeding episodes. Um, Okay, and I guess I have a little note here, know this drug for the exam. Okay, at least I'm consistent. <laughs> All right? All right, so other, um, other monoclonals that we have, um, the EGFR inhibitors or the epidermal growth factor uh, receptors, this is a family of transmembrane proteins. They're important, and they all are, have multiple names just to be different. So they can be called part of the HER family, the EGFR family, the HERB1 family, or the HERB family. But basically, EGFR, epidermal growth factor receptor, um, as you imagine, these are um, proteins that can be overexpressed in cancer cells, and they cause proliferation. So we have monoclonals that can attack them. The one drug we'll talk about is cetuximab that works extracellularly 
to stop the growth factor from binding to its receptor. Um, so this drug is, is unique um, in that its side effect profile, one of its biggest side effects is rash, which again makes sense. Epidermal growth factor, right, the epidermis, and now you're given a drug that attacks that. And the rash really predicts response. So patients who start on um, uh, EGFR inhibitor and start to get a rash, those tend to be the patients who are going to respond to the drug. We actually have one of our pharmacy techs. Um, so this has been used in both uh, colorectal, lung cancer. Um, one of our pharmacy techs had um, um, an EGFR overexpressing cancer, and, and one of when the first the drug first came out, she was put on one of these drugs, and she had an amazing response. Except she she was in her 60, early 60s, and she got this terrible acne rash. And she's like, I'm stopping the drug. I'm not taking the drug anymore. I can't stand the rash. I'm like, you can't do that. You got to take the drug. It's what's keeping you alive. So it's really can be problematic for patients. Um, so it's an acne form type rash. You treat it sort of symptomatically. You want to protect patients from getting um, um, uh, infections on top of the rash. You know, so sometimes you'll see some topical um, antibiotics used on it. Uh, keep it dry, keep it clean, all those things. Um, the drugs can cause some nausea, vomiting, some diarrhea, um, some pulmonary issues, some um, pulmonary fibrosis toxicity can occur. We don't see that that often. Um, again, this was first used in some, it, not first, but it has been used in lung cancers. Now there are other drugs that we have, so it's used mainly in colorectal cancers now. Um, there's a bit of a story to how the drug got approved for colorectal cancers. Um, so again, you know, we all have these oncogenes in our cells, right? So um, these proteins that if they something goes awry, they can turn a cell malignant. Okay, and one of the um, one of those genes is is RAS, KRAS. Um, so you can have wild type, which is normal KRAS or mutated KRAS, all right? Um, let me go to our picture, it might make more sense. So in normal circumstances, uh, let me do this. You have your receptor, right? Your, um, your, your epidermal growth factor comes in, binds to the receptor, you get all these downstream events, the RAS is activated, and you get cell prol proliferation, so the cell grows, right? So this is what's happening, your growth factor binds, everything's activated, the cell grows. When we give our drugs to tuximab, we block, oh, we block it, nope, okay. We block the growth factor from binding so you don't get these downstream effects, the cell dies, okay? So that's how the drug's working to kill the cancer cells. You're blocking um, the stimulating um, effects of the, epidermal growth factor. What was found in patients who had mutations of their RAS protein is they really didn't need that growth factor to bind to the receptor. This cell was just turned on sort of downstream. It was just always growing. So you would give the drug and you actually had no effect, right? Because you didn't need that sort of, you didn't need that activation to come from outside of the cell. The cell was already turned on. So this is, again, how we get to this area where now we're looking at specific 
um, pathways within the cell to decide what drugs we can and can't use. Um, so it's found, and what we have to do now is you have to document the status of RAS in patients with colorectal cancer um, to know whether or not cetuximab is appropriate. All right. I'm not going to ask you this on the exam because I, I fear I just lost all of you with this little, oh, see, saved by the bell. Um, <laughs> but these people today. Um, all right. But, but this is sort of the things that we're doing in oncology. We're looking for pathways. We're seeing what, what if, if we think a drug's going to work or not. And insurance companies are getting smart. And they're saying, we're not going to pay for this if you don't um, prove that the patient has that thing happening in their tumor. All right, so there are a couple studies that looked at this. Again, I'm not going to ask you this stuff, but it goes through the, the data for you. Um, so basically, if you have mutated KRAS, you don't benefit from cetuximab, but if you have wild type, um, you will respond to cetuximab. All right. So that's the colorectal cancer sort of um, uh, story. If we talk about uh, another sort of unique um, drug class is for the treatment of CML or chronic myeloid leukemia. So this is um, a disease that's been around and uh, the mutation has been around for a while that we know about. So what happens is you get a recipro reciprocal translocation of chromosomes 9 and 22 in CML, and that's called the Philadelphia chromosome. So what's happening is, if this is chromosome 9, we have this gene called ABL, and on chromosome 22, we have this gene called BCR. Um, so if you think about it, ABL's a frat house. They live in a dry town. No one has a car, all right? So things are fine. The boys study. Well, I'm going to make it boys, sorry. Apologies. They study, they do their thing, they're okay. BCR is the liquor store, a couple towns over. They don't deliver. They've never heard of, uh, what is it, Grubhub, whatever. All right, so they're sitting there. So now all of a sudden you have um, um, uh, translocation where part of chromosome 9 that has the able is then switched over and right next to BCR. Okay, so now you have the frat house right next to the liquor store and you get animal house. And that's what's happening in the leukemia cell, right? You get these two things that aren't supposed to be next to each other. It's really telling the cell, it turns on the cell, and the cell just lives and just keeps proliferating, okay? So we actually have a drug that can target this BCR-ABLE construct and shut it down, all right? And those are the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. There are a bunch of small molecule inhibitors that target BCR-ABLE, bind to it, and shut down that that proliferation. So big class of drugs, there are one, two, three, four of them now, five of them, I can't count. All right. Um, these were unique because this is the first time, these are all oral agents, and this was the first time we had an oral pill to treat a leukemia. So prior to this, the only way you could cure CML was to do a bone marrow transplant, which cannot be fun at times, okay? Now we have a pill and we have we have data out there that, that shows we can cure patients by them just taking this pill, okay? Um, one of the complicating things with chemo and, and pills right now is people tend to think 
oh, it's a pillow, how toxic can it be? There can still be some significant toxicities with our oral uh, chemo agents. So with the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and I probably want you to know just the imatinib, just know that name. Um, so you can have fluid uh, retention edema. So just this first drug, imatinib, just know that name. Um, because the, the drugs are affecting components of the bone marrow, you can have some decrease in the other cell lines. You can, the very first patient we treated with imatinib was in the hospital for maybe 40 days with a platelet count of two or three. We couldn't get his platelets up. Um, so you have to watch for uh, pharmacytopenia anemias. Um, it can affect your liver transaminases, so you can see some bumps in LFT, so you may need to do some dose reduction and stuff. Um, the cardiotoxicity is probably due to the, um, if there's pericardial edema um, and fluid, um, that's probably more so the, the mechanism, not direct cardiotoxic effects. Uh, but overall, these, these drugs were um, great. Um, one of the things I will not ask you about, but just so you know why there are all these different drugs, the cancer cells are pretty smart, right? So we have this PCR able, and there is a specific pocket where the drug fits to bind to shut off that that um, that tyrosine kinase that's being produced. What the the tumor cell has done is had um, has created a single mutation in amino acid that changes one um, one amino acid that renders all of the drugs pretty much um, ineffective because the drug can no longer bind and, and get into that pocket. The only drug that really works is panatinib, which is why you see all these different generations of these drugs. Um, so you'll hear that the, the mutation is called the T315i. So a threonine at the 315 position was changed to an isoleucine. So again, if you're out reading charts or whatever, you see these weird stuff, T315i, that's the mutation that makes all these drugs ineffective except for panatinib. Um, so again, that's sort of what we're looking at in oncology and what's happening. All right, onward. So the next uh, class of drugs have to do with epigenetics. And have you guys heard of epigenetics? Good, so I don't have to explain it. So I actually like this second definition here. Inheritable changes in DNA expression not due to the DNA sequence, okay? So it's really post-translational changes in DNA. So methylation, acetylation, all these things that can change how sort of the expression and what's going on in the cell. So if you look what's happening in, in cancer, in the top panel, this is our normal sequence of, of genes. And if these red areas are, are areas of the DNA that actually code for a protein that's important. Say it codes for a tumor suppressor gene, right? So tumor suppressor genes suppress the development of tumors, right? So we have a certain number of methyl group groups on the, the genes in front of this coding area, but this is normal, everything's working. All of a sudden in tumor cells, we have this epigenetic <laughs> modification where we have hypermethylation. We have a bunch of methyl groups put on in front of this coding sequence, and what this does is shuts off the ability of this sequence to code. All right, so now you're shutting off a tumor suppressor gene, so you get a tumor, all right? So we know this is this happening in a couple of our tumor types. 
So why not make drugs that can sort of reverse this process by taking away these methyl groups? And the whole idea is eventually get rid of those methyl groups so you turn on their tumor suppressor gene again, okay? So we, have, um, we do have hypomethylating agents, um, and really these are used for leukemia um, and myelodysplastic syndromes, so basically leukemias think of. And basically what they do is they, through various mechanisms, they take off those methyl groups, okay? So ultimately you want enough of those methyl groups removed so that you turn on your gene again, all right? So it takes multiple cycles for that to happen. It doesn't happen after one dose, but that's ultimately how they work. Is there something about those methyl uh, groups in specific that you remove the inappropriate ones first, or like, do you end up removing way too many? So the question is, is there something that, that these drugs target and take off the specific methyl groups that are causing the decrease, or is it just sort of like, yeah, no, it's not, spe it's not that specific. Um, so how do you not end up turning on a bunch of random genes or off a bunch of random genes? So the question is, how do you end up not turning on a bunch of random genes? I, I don't think we know the answer to that. Um, quite honestly, we, we may be doing that. Um, um, the studies I've read, you know, they look at specific sites of methylations. Um, prior, um, so it's not, we haven't seen adverse effects of the drug, uh, leading us to believe that something else is turned on, causing some issues. Um, so basically, um, these are there are two drugs out there: decitabine and azacitidine. Um, both of these are S-phase specific. Um, along with being hypomethylating, they they do have some um, myelosuppressive effects. So they will go in and kill some cells too. Um, so again, if you think you're using this for a leukemia where cells are growing uh, relatively quickly, you need to decrease your tumor burden a little bit too while that hypomethylation take place. So you're getting a little bit of double whammy there. So you're hypomethylating, and again, it takes about three cycles for that to happen, but you're also killing off some cells too. Um, a couple of different differences in the regimens. Again, I'm not gonna ask you specifics about whether you use decitabine or azacitidine, just sort of try and get the association hypomethylating um, in these drugs. All right, we're in the home stretch. I think you're gonna get out early, don't tell Paul. <laughs> All right, so this, this is better around Easter time, but. All right, so, so, so you see, we've sort of been progressing in how we're talking about our chemo. You know, we go from giving something like cisplatin that's killing everything in sight and causing all kinds of toxicities to trying to get down to drugs that are really just more targeted agents, just affecting specific pathways and such. Really the newest stuff out there is, is working with the immune system to get the immune system to recognize the cancer again and get stuff working. So the newest class of agents are the immune checkpoint inhibitors. And they, they really work by getting the immune system and specifically T cells to recognize tumors again. Um, so you guys have had immunology, right? So you remember it better than I do. But remember when you turn when you have 
something in your body foreign and you want your immune system to recognize it, right? It recognizes the T cell presents antigen to whatever cells in combination, usually with class one or class two HLA, right? And it turns on those T cells. There are also co-stimulatory molecules that are involved, right? Remember that? So it turns it on, the T cells say, okay, I gotta go kill this stuff. So to ramp up, you get um, T cells replicate, you get a bunch of T cells, but then at some point, the immune system shuts down, right? And that happens by the T cell sort of upregulating some inhibitory proteins, okay? And that shuts down the, the process. Because if you didn't, you get autoimmune diseases, you get badness happening, right? So what our, these drugs are doing is they're blocking that inhibitory signal to the T cell and trying to get the T cells to turn on again and just recognize the, the cancer and sort of go crazy. Um, so they're, they're working on different inhibitory molecules. So there are really two, um, two classes of the drugs, um, and they're being used in multiple tumor types. The very first um, approval was this drug <coughs> called ipilimumab. So ipilimumab was used in malignant melanoma and really works on the CTLA-4 molecule. So again, it blocks, if you look at this, so this is the initial activation, and then you have CTLA-4 and CD80 um, on the antigen-presenting cell upregulated to shut down the T-cell um, activation. We give this monoclonal antibody, ipilimumab, it binds to CTLA-4, sort of shuts off that inhibitory signal, so the cell um, starts recognizing the melanoma again. Okay. So, this is the study that got it approved. Um, don't worry about the details of the study. It's there for you to look up when you're bored and want to read about it. Um, so ipilimumab really um, is used in melanoma for the most part. It's not moved out into other tumor types per se. Really the, the ones that you're going to hear about the most are the PD-1 monoclonal antibodies. PD-1 stands for program death. And it's the same idea. In this case, um, they're blocking this protein PD-1 and PD-L1. So the two ways you can either block um, at the PD-1 or at the PD-1L. So you can block either site, but it's the same idea. You're blocking that inhibitory signal, okay? So these are the ones you see the, um, the commercials about. Um, I think Keytruda is the one that's on TV the most, the, the commercial. Um, so pembrolizumab and nivolumab are the two most, the two PD-1 inhibitors are actually a bunch of others now that have been approved, but these are the two main ones. Um, this probably needs updating. It's not just melanoma and lung cancer anymore. It's used in most of the solid tumors. Um, the key thing with this is if you're ever, like if anyone wants to do emergency medicine or, you know, some sort of triage, whatever, if you hear about a patient getting one of these drugs, um, you got to think a little bit differently about the side effects they might present with. Because remember, now we're turning on the T cells, and what are the toxicities you might expect to see when you turn on someone's T cells? Uh, yeah, itises, right? So any kind of, sort of like you're giving a patient an autoimmune disease, right? So they could have a colitis, they could have a pneumonitis, they could have a, um, a rash, they could have, um, I can't think of other itises, but anything, these T cells, if they get revved up enough, can um, attack any organ system in the body. 
So now if someone comes into the ER, you take a history from them, they got um, Keytruda two weeks ago and they're having a lot of pain, you, you think it might be colitis, do you give them antibiotics or do you worry about how, you, how would you shut off um, these, these drugs, do you think? If something's activated T-cells, how would you shut off T-cells? Steroids, right? So really the treatment of choice if you have uh, a PD-1 induced sort of toxicity is to give steroids. So you might err on the side of giving an antibiotic and giving steroids, which is sort of counterintuitive, but you gotta, you gotta think about it. Um, and it, it really, it's key to identify if patients have gotten these drugs or not. Yep. Would steroids oppose the action of this on tumors? Yeah, so the question is would the steroids oppose the action of, of the drug? And the, the answer is yes. Um, most of the time you can give a low enough dose where it's, it's not as clinically significant and there are parameters for how to give steroids and when to restart the drug too. So it doesn't, you know, it may shut it off for that period of time and you can go back and give the drug again and, and do okay with it. So it doesn't reverse all the, the good that the drug has done immediately. Yeah. If we're in the ED, should we be making that call or should we be paging the on-call oncologist? So the question is, if you're in the ED, should you be making that call or page the on-call oncologist? So you're always going to work in conjunction with the, the on-call oncologist. You're, unless the, the person's an extremist, you're probably not going to give them a slug of steroid until you talk to someone. But it is, I think the key is doing the history and getting and, and knowing that that could be a possibility and not just saying, oh, it's colitis, just put them on antibiotics. You know, you, you got to make that, that association. And as you notice, some people don't answer their pages all the time. So <laughs> it's okay if getting fired is good. All right. So uh, no. So the PD one inhibitors. So you're going to see a lot of those. Um, definitely unique uh, mechanism of action. Unique toxicities. Definitely a lot more drugs coming. Um, I can think of like two or three others that have been approved that all work. And the question is going to be which one? Do we really need all of them out there? Because some are just. Like there's one, one of the, my pages was about um, a new PD-1 inhibitor that's just for Merkel cell cancers, which is a very rare skin type of cancer. Uh, and it's like, okay, that has that one niche, but do we need one drug that's gonna cost us 10,000 bucks a dose uh, where these others work? So all stuff you can think about. Um, these are close to the last stuff. Um, so the, the other new drug that's out there, just approved eh, maybe a year and a half ago, whatever, is a BCL2 inhibitor. So everyone knows about apoptosis and how apoptosis works, right? And you have families of cell, BCL2 type cells and BACs and whatever, and they, there are all these uh, proteins in the cell that are either pro-apoptotic or um, anti-apoptotic, right? So there's a balance, and depending on which cells are, or which proteins are overexpressed, so it tells you what the cell's gonna do. So in a disease like CLL, there's an overexpression of BCL2. So that prevents cells from undergoing apoptosis. So that's why those cells live a long time. So there's this new drug out there called venetoclax, which is the first of its class of BCL2 inhibitor. So what this drug does is binds BCL2 BCL2 then releases pro-apoptotic proteins, allows the cell to undergo apoptosis. Um, so it's a whole new mechanism of action, unique type drug. Um, and 
I think you're going to see this drug in a lot of other areas being used because BCL2 and, and um, is a mechanism that's that's prevalent in a lot of tumor types. Um, this drug does have the major side effect or toxicity with this drug is tumor lysis syndrome because it's so good at, at killing off those CLL cells um, and patients with CLL will have can have some very high white counts. You see a lot of tumor lysis. So some things you have to do in terms of uh, monitoring patients and watching out for them. But that's sort of one of the newest things out there. And these are oral agents. Again, if you ever want to get into a, a um, jobs out there where you have to help uh, with compliance and oral agents and such, this is the area. There's so many new oral oncolytics out there. Um, all right, so I think that's it for the specific drugs. Um, the last couple of slides, more informational, not so much um, exam material. So vesicants and irritants. So remember we said vesicants are drugs. If they leak from the vein, cause tissue necrosis. So if you ever get called, you know, you gotta, you stop the infusion right away, get as much drug out of the area, mark the area, uh, treat it symptomatically, and call plastics if you need to. Um, so the vesicants, I think we pointed out the ones in the, um, in the lecture, and extravasation, really there aren't antidotes, so I have to have some gross pictures for you. So this is a doxorubicin extravasation. Uh, this one isn't too bad, you know, you can sort of see the area. This is probably where the IV was around this area. Um, this is a really bad one. You don't want that to happen, okay? So you don't ever want to have to get that phone call. Um, in terms of irritants, these are more uh, drugs that, as you, you know, if you, the nurse is picking the same vein to put the IV in and you're pushing the drug through the same vein, it can get irritating to patients. So really, your options are pick a different vein or put in a central line. So patients, you know, there's not a lot to do for those. Um, we didn't talk about resistance. Again, this is for more just for your information. So um, I think I talked about a couple of examples where tumor cells are pretty smart, so they can evade um, and become resistant to the chemotherapy. A whole bunch of ways that they can do that. It's an active area of research. We've yet to find a drug or a maneuver that can reverse resistance. Um, and really, it's clinically, we don't do a lot of testing to say, well, this, this cell is going to be resistant to this drug. It's not something that's clinically um, out there yet, but something that's being looked at. Last few slides are about um, uh, toxicities and what drugs fall under that toxicity. So sometimes, you know, it all depends on how you study and whatever. So I just tried to group some stuff for you um, and more gross pictures just because what's well, a lecture without gross <coughs> pictures. So mucositis, um, again, it's sort of, you can't, it's hard to see, but this whitish area on the tongue and on the, the side of the mouth there, um, basically the skin sloughs and falls off. Um, really not fun for patients. Can be very, quite painful. Um, so neurotoxicity, and there, there are some drugs here that we didn't talk about. Again, I will not ask you about a drug if I did not talk about it, all right? So please don't email me that question. Um, so, you know, some stuff may actually be helpful. I think there's one student in 20 years who said the lectures were helpful. So, it's good. <laughs> All right. So, uh, cardiotoxicity, nephro, uro, skin. Um, 
know, we talked about, you know, we talked about sterility, um, the risk of secondary leukemias and such, and hypersensitivity, infusion-related. Um, I have one other thing if you guys will give me five minutes if you want to learn or not. It's up to you. So, so the other newest thing, let's see if it's still here. It might not be there, so you might be at, uh, oh, here you go. So the, the, the other new thing in oncology, and you don't have to write, you can just listen, are, are CAR T-cells. I don't know if you've heard about these. So th this is sort of what people are looking to do now. And really it's about... Do you want like, that on the screen? Oh, yeah. Well, that would be good. What happened to it? These are really, we're not going to go through learning objectives. So obviously these are slides from a, for a company that uh, a friend of mine said I could use. Um, really, he did. Right, so, um, so the whole idea with CAR T cells is you have a patient with um, a, a refract refractory Right now, it's, it's the approvals are in uh, acute lymphocytic leukemia and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. There are probably other indications coming. We're actually might be starting a study in our hospital in multiple myeloma. But the whole idea is to get uh, a specific T cell that's going to recognize the, the patient's own tumor type and get that T cell subset to recognize the tumor and expand and go after um, the, the tumor, okay? So you're using the patient's own T cells, you're sort of exposing them to some stuff, expanding them, giving them back to the patient, and the whole idea is that the patient's um, immune system sort of gets a boost and, and gets moving. Um, so, so there are different um, constructs, so it gets a little complicated in terms of um, what's happening so this stuff is done outside of the hospital so you're taking you're getting the patient you're getting cells from the patient there we go so you're collecting you're doing what's called leukophoresis so you're getting t cells off from the patient right you collect them freeze them down you send them to the company the company's doing the manufacture of these car t cells so they're putting in these constructs that allow the t cells to um so we'll go back to this slide this is what they're doing. They're they're making this. Um, uh, All right, they're doing that stuff over there. All right, <laughs> they're they're putting in this construct. They're getting the T cell um, to hopefully recognize the um, the patient's own tumor and, and be effective on on the patient. Um, All right. Um, so depending on which company you're using, they're all different co-stimulatory domains and, and what the constructs are, but basically they're playing with the T cells in a lab somewhere, okay? So you got your cells, you sent them off, um, then they ship them back to you. You have to give the patient some chemotherapy to sort of dampen down the patient's own immune system, because if you give 
these questionably foreign T cells to the patient, you don't want to sort of get rid of all those T cells. So you're giving some immunosuppressive chemo or lymphodepleting chemo to, to knock down the patient's own lymphocytes. And then you infuse these new T cells, these CAR T cells, and the whole idea is they're going to grow up and um, expand and start attacking the tumor. All right? Sounds easy, right? Piece of cake. So this whole process takes, um, the companies are saying uh, a month to by the time they uh, get the cells to the time you get them back in the hospital. So, you, so now patient selection becomes important because if you have a patient who has a lymphoma that's taken off, um, you need to watch out for that. Um, you know, patient has to live long enough to get their CAR T's in. Um, and then once it's given, hopefully the T cells are going to expand, start to recognize the tumor, kill the tumor. There are significant toxicities with the procedure. Um, and really the thing, there are two things, the cytokine release syndrome. This is sort of the new buzzword in oncology, and really what that is, is basically your cytokines go crazy, and patients get sick with fevers, um, high spiking fevers, chills, uh, hypotension, uh, tachycardia, hypoxia. It's mediated by IL-6. Um, a lot of times, if you shut off CRS, you also shut off the response of the drug itself, of the CAR T cells. So you have to watch your patient, let them get a little sick, and know sort of when to pull the trigger. Really, to shut off CRS, there are two, two drugs. One is tocilizumab which will block IL-6. The other thing is to give steroids to shut off the reaction. Um, the other toxicity, you can have neurotoxicity. It's really not clear why, other than some of the T cells may get into the CNS, but you have confusion, tremor, encephalopathy, seizures. We had one kid that we sent um, to Sloan Kettering in New York to get uh, CAR-Ts for his leukemia. He spent a, a month in the intensive care unit with complications of, of the CAR-Ts. Um, so it's really it's, it's somewhat um, fun and interesting stuff, and this is sort of the newest thing you might start hearing about. If anyone wants the slides, let me know. I'm obviously not going to ask you this on the exam at all. Okay, I just thought you might want to see it because I know you're all very inquisitive and want to know as much as you can and want to sit here for as long as possible. <laughs> all right, so any other questions? All right, so remember, I'm gone as of next Thursday, so if you have questions, let me know. All right. Don't tell Paul we left early, okay? Thank you. Yeah.